Ta is powered by the Seneca Network. We are bi-weekly podcasts focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SUP China, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McRonald for editing. We are here this week with Leda Hong Fincher, author of the most recent best-selling book, Betraying Big Brother. Listed as Vanity Fair's top political books of fall 2018, and also on the must-read list for Newsweek and foreign policy. Prior to this endeavor, she has written for the New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian, BBC, CNN, and others. Now, I don't normally do this, but I would like to pull from the book summary here. On the eve of International Women's Day in 2015, the Chinese government arrested five feminist activists and jailed them for 37 days. The Feminist Five became a global cause celeb, with Hillary Clinton speaking out on their behalf and symbols of much larger feminist movement of civil rights lawyers, labor activists, performance artists, and online warriors prompting an unprecedented awakening among the China's educated urban women. In Betraying Big Brother, Leda argues the popular broad-based movement poses the greatest challenge to China's authoritarian regime today. Through interviews with the Feminist Five and other leading Chinese activists, Leda illuminates both the difficulties they face and the, quote, joy of betraying Big Brother, unquote. As one of the Feminist Five wrote of the defiance she felt during her detention, Tracing the rise of a new feminist consciousness now finding expression through the hashtag MeToo movement, and describing how the communist regime has suppressed the history of its own feminist struggles, Betraying Big Brother is a story of how the movement against the patriarchy could reconfigure China and the world. Now, I had the chance of meeting up with Leda at a bustling part of New York City and excuse some of the background noise, but it was so important that we got to talk about her attending Tsinghua University and being the first American to receive a PhD from the sociology department, but how she approached interviewing the Feminist Five for her book, and even her own personal inspirations and endeavors. Let's take a listen here. Hi, Leda. We are so excited to have you on Ta for Ta today. Well, thanks so much for having me here, Juliana. Yeah, my latest book is Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China. It's actually my second book. And I uh, wrote it kind of as a sequel to my first book, which was Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China. That first book was based on my PhD dissertation. I was a longtime journalist, including reporting many years in China, and I actually did a PhD at Tsinghua University in Beijing, mainly by accident because I was not given a new journalist visa by the Chinese foreign ministry. And I had already moved back to China with my family and we had already settled back in Beijing. And so um, I was waiting for my journalist visa to come through. This was in 2009. And I waited for around nine months, and I still didn't have it. Um, and so at that point, my my mom, who is a Chinese immigrant who lives in America now, encouraged me to apply for PhD programs at Chinese universities. So at first, I thought that was kind of a crazy idea. But then um, when I looked into it, I thought, well, you know, why not? Why don't I just try? 
And then I wound up getting a good fellowship from Tsinghua University. So that's how I got on this path away from journalism into scholarship. Um, so basically, that's you know encapsulated version of my career. Just for for many many years, I was a journalist, and then made this transition into academia. And um, now I'm sort of combining both, and recently just moved back. To New York. Yeah, so let's start with your early childhood influences. What was it like traveling around China as a young child with your parents? What were those experiences like? I mean, it definitely got you to move back to China for further education, so it must have been a positive experience overall. My father at the time was in the foreign service um, working for the State Department, the U.S. State Department. So I was born in Hong Kong um, as a U.S. citizen, and then we moved to Japan for a little while, um, and then my father quit the foreign service and became an academic, and so both my parents were then academics, and we moved to Australia when I was six. So I was basically raised in Australia with a, a lot of frequent travel to China throughout my childhood because both of my parents were China scholars. So in addition to my mom being, you know, Chinese, um, naturalized U.S. citizen, both my parents studied China. So I started going to China from, from the time I was a toddler, really, and I grew up speaking Chinese Mandarin with my mom, and I still speak Mandarin with her. And so China has been a, just a huge part of my upbringing and my identity, really. So when I went to college, I ended up majoring in East Asian languages and civilizations at Harvard University. And I also did a master's in East Asian studies at Stanford. And then it was after I got my master's degree that I became a journalist. And then I always had this goal of going and reporting on China, which is in fact what I did. So China has just been, you know, an, just an enormous part of my entire life, from my heritage to my interests, my study interests, my career interests. And it continues to be very much kind of at the center of all of my research interests today. Yeah, so it seems like China's continued to pull you in, but you are also the first doctorate to graduate from Tsinghua University's sociology, the first American. What was that like? So I've attended Tsinghua University, and I'm familiar with the campus, but what was it like to be the first? Well, I was the first American to graduate with a PhD in the sociology department. So Still. not the first American to get a PhD, but there are very, very few Americans who get PhDs in China. This is why when my mom first suggested that I try it, that I thought, that is the craziest idea. Um, but then when I looked into it, I thought, well, you know, why not? I may as well apply. What harm can I do? And then Tsinghua ended up giving me a great scholarship. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to accept it and we'll just see how it goes. And it was really interesting. The first year I took 
classes, you had to take all classes for the first year of the doctoral program. And I was really astonished, actually, at how progressive some of the professors were, how freewheeling our classroom discussions were. They were extremely stimulating. And I was surprised by that, given the tight ideological constraints um, that are becoming even tighter today. But, but at that time, I started my classes in 2010. And so I think it was a, it's an incredibly interesting department within Tsinghua University. Of course, I was in the Chinese language program. You had to do everything in, all the classes were in Chinese. And I had to write a couple of papers in Chinese, but I was fortunate enough to have some professors who let me write my papers in English. So the first year, it was very class intensive. I learned a lot. I also learned a lot about the political control of university students. Um, I was actually exempt from a lot of that. In fact, practically all of it because I'm an American citizen. So I uh, was not required to take political education classes, unlike my classmates, all of whom were Chinese. Um, I also had a, a Uyghur classmate and they all had to take Marxist-Leninist education, um, the political indoctrination classes, but I was given the choice as a foreigner to take something like Confucianism and Chinese philosophy, which is what I took instead. So I definitely used my privilege as an American to get out of a lot of the requirements for my classmates that were really kind of political in nature that didn't have to do with academics. So I, I remember feeling kind of sorry for a lot of my classmates. <laughs> it was definitely eye-opening for me. So that was, that was the first year. I mean, I don't know how much you want to talk about that. But then I was also very fortunate to have an advisor who pretty much let me do what I wanted to with very little control. And I was extremely lucky because not everybody gets to have an advisor like that. And, and again, I think that I benefited from being an American because I, I saw some of the tasks that my classmates had to do that were not related to their research, some, you know, like running errands, um, things like that. So it's really not a pleasant experience for most Chinese students. Um, but I was really treated differently. And so this was a huge surprise to me. Um, and so I basically spent the last three years of the doctoral program working extremely independently with some gentle guidance from my advisor and um, and then I just really got into my research and, and then out of that research I wrote my first book, Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China. So really it was accumulation of your experience and expertise that took you to the next level of wanting to write a book. That's really how you moved between being a journalist and academic and author 
or would you say it's something else? Well, no, I mean, I was approached by Paul French, who is the editor of this Asian argument series at Zed Books. He asked me if I'd be interested in writing a book about my research because I had written some op-eds, um, you know, using my journalistic background. I, I wanted to write a few op-eds about what I was discovering in my research on gender and housing and you know the idea of leftover women or shunyu that's the term used not so much used uh, it's not quite as common anymore but uh, back when I was doing my research it, it, um, it was not long after the Chinese government started really propagating this term um, to in my view this was a uh, deliberate strategy to push single, educated Han Chinese women into getting married by shaming them for being single when they're in their mid-twenties, mid to late-twenties. So I just took Paul up on his offer, um, and I thought, well, that would be great, because I'm writing my dissertation anyway. And so I actually came out with my published book before I got my PhD, just a few months beforehand. Oh, wow. And I defended the thesis um, after the publication of my book. What was that like? Well, um, the oral defense of the PhD thesis was where I could feel the controls getting a little tighter because up until that point, I'd been pretty much left to myself to do my own research and then um, we had to do two oral uh, defenses. So we would do, we did a first round, of course it was all in Chinese, and there were um, five professors questioning me, um, and I gave them my thesis, which was supposed to be a draft. Well, it was basically finished, but, but then I was given very strong tips on what I needed to do to edit the thesis or change it. And so basically, uh, I did what they told me to um, and changed the wording. I changed the emphasis in some ways. I even changed the title of the thesis. So for example, I was told originally I had the word post-socialist um, describing gender and uh, China's privatization of housing um, in post-socialist China. And then I was told that I needed to take out the term post-socialist because China is not post-socialist, I was told. We're still very much socialist. So things like that. But that, you know, I wanted to get my degree. And so I just made those changes. And then, and then I had to do a second oral defense of the thesis. Everybody had to do this, two rounds of oral defense. And it was extremely intimidating because, you know, I had to do it all in Chinese. And so, um, but I was very proud of myself when I passed <laughs> unanimously. And it had been a lot of work and been really challenging. And, and then I encountered some bureaucratic obstacles coming from higher levels than the Department of Sociology that were more obstacles to my getting my PhD. 
they, I was told that I didn't have the correct kind of publication to get my degree. And so they didn't, they didn't count this book that I wrote. They said that um, a higher committee at Tsinghua said that I had to have a formal social science citation index, peer-reviewed academic journal on their list of acceptable journals, ex uh, accepting a paper for publication. And so this was after the Department of Sociology had already told me that I had passed, that I was now a doctor, but in fact, you know, in fact, I wasn't. And so I kind of went into a state of panic for a while, but I was able to get my degree because um, my paper was accepted, just very coincidentally and fortunately, it was accepted by um, a peer-reviewed journal that was on their list of acceptable publications. So that was a hair-raising experience for me. Right. And um, it just shows you how much intense pressure Chinese students are under, and it's not just students, professors as well, to publish, to publish extensively. It's a big problem. And it still is. It's certainly a problem, yes. But I would say that there are other problems that are even more serious than that, which is really the increasing ideological control um, over universities in general. And we definitely go down that road, but I want to hear more about your response to leftover women. And was there anything during the time of writing that book that sourced the starting of Betraying Big Brother? Or were those completely separate lines of thought that spawned from different experiences? Did you end up meeting some of the women that you interviewed for Betraying Big Brother over the course of writing Leftover Women? Yes. In fact, uh, I wrote a little bit about Li Maizu, who was a feminist activist already in 2013 when I was writing Leftover Women. And so that interview with her, by the way, was not part of my formal dissertation research. So I was, I was doing my formal dissertation, and at the same time I was also thinking about, you know, I was also writing this book, which drew very heavily on my dissertation, but at the same time veered away from it in quite a few ways. Um, and so I included a, a little bit about her at the end of the book, Leftover Women. And that book was published in April of 2014. So I was giving book talks about it, and then in March, March 6th of 2015, is when the police in several different cities started doing these big roundups of feminist activists. And then one of the women that they jailed was Lee Meitz, and I personally knew her. And so I was incredibly alarmed and worried. I knew her, but I was, of course, worried about all five of the women who were jailed. Um, and they were jailed. It was the eve of International Women's Day in 2015. They had been planning to celebrate International Women's Day by handing out these stickers about, anti, about sexual harassment on subways and, and buses. And so they became known as the Feminist Five. Um, and so 
I was watching that case very, very closely. And then when the women were released after 37 days, I, I was still watching, you know, and wondering, you know, I, wondering if I would be able to get to them and talk to them at some point uh, because they were under de facto house arrest for a while after their formal release from detention. And then I was just kind of putting out feelers to other people that I knew um, in activist communities and feminist communities. I, I was already friends with some feminists, um, but I thought that it would be really interesting. I was very curious to find out, you know, what happened to these women when they were detained and why it was that the government was so paranoid about their feminist activism. So that really grew out of my previous work and um, I was just drawn into it and then when the police kind of relaxed their monitoring of these women um, around six months after they were formally released from detention that's when I started to do interviews with members of the Feminist Five and other feminist activists and I did more and more interviews and then Within a few months, I realized you know, this is an absolutely fascinating topic and I should write another book. So that's what happened. You have conducted so many interviews over the course of your writing. And I'm curious what has been the most difficult interview for you to conduct based on whatever criteria that you decide. What made it so difficult either for you or the interviewee? And could you just take us to that time and place? I would say without a doubt the most difficult interviews I did was with these the all members of the feminist five about their experience in detention and how they were persecuted by these state security agents because you know it was they all suffered enormously and so it was very difficult to try to get at the facts of what happened to them while being very sensitive to their ongoing trauma which varied according you know there were five of them so those were the most difficult interviews I've ever done and I did a whole series of them because I was following up with these ones. But, but I would say um, those first encounters with the women, not that long after they were released from detention, that, that was a really difficult, sensitive time for them. Um, but they were all incredibly keen to talk to me. They wanted to tell their stories. And so I uh, spent a long time with each of them, just our, the, 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 the initial interview, the very first interview with each of those women after they were released from detention. Those were the most difficult interviews that I did. How do you balance empathy with getting the information you need to write a factual and compelling book? How do you push interviewees while also creating a space that's comfortable, approachable, 
Not that anyone is feeling like they're being cheated. How did you balance that? I did repeated interviews. So I certainly didn't cover everything in the first interviews with these women. Um, so I, you know, all of the, I didn't gather all of the information I needed just in one fell swoop. So, um, so I approached it, you know, kind of gingerly and, uh, and I, I, I primarily listen, um, and let them speak about what they wanted to speak and then, or what, what they wanted to say. Um, and, so I would have these, you know, hours-long conversations, um, and I don't want, I don't think I want to go into too much detail that's about fair, how that's that fair. happened. Mm-hmm. But basically, you know, it was a it was a process where I came back to the women, um, you know, over time. I followed them over time, and uh, so from the first interview that I conducted in November 2015 until um, until just before the book went to press. I was communicating to varying degrees with different women that I interviewed. I also went back to virtually all of them just before the book went to press to go over details uh, that were going to be in the book to make sure that they were still okay um, with what they had told me. Um, and in fact, some of them asked me to to change or to take out some of the things that they felt uncomfortable with in retrospect. Mm-hmm. And that's not usual practice, certainly not for a journalist, but I felt that, you know, with a topic like this that... Uh, was so sensitive and um, it, there's ongoing these are living women you know who can easily encounter more troubles from the police and so I wanted to be incredibly rigorous about trying to you know defer to what, what they wanted told even when they changed their mind Mm. Um, so that's not what I would usually do um, but I, I thought you know that's the right ethical thing to do with a topic like this right over the course of writing your book did you find that you learned anything about yourself oh well I learned an enormous amount I mean in fact I write a little bit about this in the book um, because because I did all the interviews myself, I translated them myself. Um, I transcribed a lot of them myself. I did get some help because I did so many interviews. I ended up asking some people or paying some people to help me transcribe some of the interviews, some of the less central interviews, and just transcribe them into Chinese um, because there were such long interviews but I, I wanted them to be transcribed into Chinese, and so, so I could have uh, complete you know, understanding of exactly what they said, and then that I could do the translation into English myself. Um, so I transcribed the incredibly detailed descriptions of what happened 
to the women when they were detained, how they were treated by the security agents. These were incredibly extensive interviews. And, and in fact, what wound up in the book is really a distillation, mm. a, a very small proportion of what the women told yeah. me. But I went through these interviews, listening over and over again and transcribing them. And, and um, in the course of interviewing them and listening to the interviews and, you know, kind of feeling or empathizing with their suffering, it triggered these memories that I had of being sexually assaulted when I was 15 that I had just buried and I hadn't confronted in many, many years. And so we also, it was also at a time, I mean, in the last few years when you know, women were already coming forward a lot more and talking about their own experiences with sexual violence. And so, um, so all of that was sort of this big maelstrom. And it was an emotional mm -hmm. roller coaster for me as well. And I learned a lot about myself. And, and so I wrote the second book from a different point of view. I, I think I definitely had a, a strong point of view, a very feminist point of view, I was no longer the detached academic, which is how I wrote the first book. Mm. Um, but I still think that it's intellectually rigorous. It's just more, I put more, I think, more emotion um, into I, it. And you can definitely tell the difference between the two books and how they're written. I mean, the first is more academic, neutral, Whereas the second, you're a few pages into it and you're already infusing your own viewpoint and experiences across the narrative. I really like that depth in a way that the feminist and Me Too movement has felt personal across the world, including China. So I just, I want to thank you so much for sharing. And you do talk about how the feminist movement could be the biggest threat to the authoritarian patriarchy itself. And, and I want to dig a little bit more into that. Why is it feminism? Why is it minority rights, for example? How is it dismantling something that is so enduring? Right. Well, I don't think I say that this is the only... Fair. And also, I would phrase it as um, the feminist movement is perceived by the Communist Party to be a threat. Okay. Which is very different mm -hmm. from, because the feminists themselves really bend over backwards to emphasize that they're not confronting the Communist Party. Certainly publicly they never say that. Almost never. Um, so... I have to clarify that. No, thank you. Um, but I think the way I describe it and the way I see it still today is that the women's rights movement in general, combined with just increased awareness among ordinary women across China about their rights, about the level of sexism that they have to tolerate, um, and the increased willingness of ordinary women to stand up for their rights and speak out, that overall poses a completely unique challenge to the Communist Party. 
Um, so there have definitely been a lot of social movements in the past that have been perceived as a threat um, and have been completely wiped out or driven completely underground. You could point to, I mean, so many. Um, uh, so I, I don't think I want to go into detail because there are so many other social movements that, that have existed and then have been crushed. But what is so inspiring to me is that here we are, it's more than four years after the jailing of the Feminist Five, we're in 2019, and the women's rights movement is still surviving, but in some ways you could argue that it's still growing. I mean, it certainly grew a lot from 2015 onwards. And then, you know, you, you could see this cascade of voices that came out, kind of seizing on the Me Too global momentum in 2018. Um, and so it, it spread across dozens of the university campuses with all these thousands of university students and graduates signing their names to petitions, demanding that universities take sexual harassment seriously. That was definitely you know, where we saw the fruits of the feminist movement, of the political activists who'd been working for years to highlight problems like you know, rape, sexual harassment, gender discrimination. Um, and then it had gone beyond, by that point, it had gone beyond just you know, die-hard feminist activists to include even male, male students, so quite a lot of young men were signing these petitions as well. Um, and there's been a huge amount of overlap with the LGBTQ rights movement as well, and a lot of the feminist activists are themselves queer or, you know, non-normative sexually. Um, and so, uh, and, then, and then there's, the, the, the fact is there, there's all this overlap with uh, other movements. So you've got the women's rights movement, you have increased awareness among women about the need to stand up for their rights. Then you have cross-class overlap as well, where, you know, it's not just an elite, urban, educated women's movement confined to university educated women, um, which is kind of where it started out. Now it's kind of spilled over um, in really pronounced ways um, into the working class and labor rights activism. Um, and so I write a bit about that in the book, but in fact, since the book came out, in September, that element, the cross-class overlap with the working class, with factory workers, and then uh, elite university students actually uh, joining forces with factory workers to advocate for more workers' rights. That's a huge new development in recent months that the government is intensely focused on. Um, and just in recent months, there have been all these activists, labor rights activists, who, some of whom were students at elite universities who were detained and are still in detention. We don't really know where they are. So there are a lot of things about women's rights 
uh, about feminism that are perceived to be a threat. Um, and, and I go into a lot of the different ways and why it is um, that the Communist Party um, sees feminism as a threat. And one of the reasons I believe is that the Communist Party is now really paranoid about its own survival and, and perceived threats from the outside. Um, and so, I mean, we, we all, China experts all know this, there's been a real assault on civil society, especially in the last few years. Um, but the thing about, the, about women's rights is that, you know, they're half of the population. And so uh, the message of feminists really, it resonates with, at the very least, tens of millions of women across China, at the very, very least. Um, and I would say, it probably, I mean, obviously there's no way to quantify this, but if you just look at the social media, which is very heavily censored, but still there is space there. There's so many more feminist social media accounts, so many more ordinary women or non-binary people, um, LGBTQ people, who are talking about the, you know, the need to have more justice and equality and um, so the censorship of these issues is intensified. And last year you saw the most prominent feminist social media platform, Feminist Voices, was banned yeah. on the night of International Women's Day. Um, but the thing is that this is not a movement that can be crushed just by jailing activists because it is too popular. The messages are so popular. They're very mainstream. They relate to uh, sexual violence, for example. Most women in China have experienced, obviously you can't get a firm number on this. You can't even do that globally, let alone in China. But from my research and, and interviews over the years, I would be believe that the majority of women in China have experienced sexual harassment of one kind or another. And they've also experienced probably really blatant gender discrimination from the time they were born as girls to the time, you know, all the way through, particularly once they graduate from university. Mm. And, and even when they're applying to university. So at every step of the way, by the time these women are in their early 20s, sometimes even when they're still teenagers, they've already, as girls, experienced a huge amount of gender discrimination and they just feel, they've, all, they've been feeling that it's unfair for a long time. And in fact, I wrote about that in my first book. You know, all these women who felt it was so unfair that they were getting pushed into marrying some guy they didn't like, and, you know, they, they weren't able to put their name on the property deed, even though they were contributing all of their life savings to the purchase of a marital home. That was just, that was one of the things I focused on in the first book. So 
Yeah. So women have always been, you know, not always, but they for a long time have felt unhappy, but they kept their suffering to themselves. And what's really changed in recent years is more and more women are not keeping their suffering to themselves. There's kind of a critical mass that is being reached where, you know, these ordinary women can look around them. They can look on social media and see, you know, there are other young women who are speaking out and demanding more equality and more rights. And so that, to me, is incredibly heartening. I have been wanting to ask you a question about this. There are a lot of women in China that say that we have the same level of equality here, hearkening back to our communist roots, women hold up half the sky, we're equals. That's just the way it is. And I often feel that sometimes that's in such a tension with what the feminist movement is trying to do. Could you explain or nuance some of why that tension exists? Well, actually, I wrote about a lot of this in my first book. Um, It was really astounding to me how many compromises these incredibly bright, you know, very talented, uh, accomplished young women, um, how many compromises they were willing to make in their own personal lives, that they were, you know, willing to just almost give up their economic independence in many ways when they got married. Why were they willing to do that to themselves? And it was demoralizing for me. Um, It was kind of depressing research, actually, because I I, I wanted to just say, why don't you stand up for yourself? Um, But I was really conducting a more academic study, and so I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to primarily listen to what these women say. And it's not my role here to try to agitate and, you know. (laughs) Um, So that's really changed, though. So so that's, that I think is, I I don't know, it's so hard to quantify how many, you know, you can't, I think it's impossible to say what percentage of, you know, the, women in their 20s or, um, or in their early 30s um, kept their suffering to themselves or thought that they should play a very traditional role in society, um, thought that there was no, or, or would never speak publicly and would never admit to, having, to there being a problem. Mm. Um, it's, it really is, that's why I use the word awakening in the subtitle. Because it's a form of being, it's like being asleep. And I mean, I write about myself being asleep to a lot of the injustice, you know, the, or the assault that I had experienced as a young girl. You, you're asleep or you, you're deliberately ignoring something that's very painful and you're putting it away in another part of your brain. And... Um, So I think that the feminist movement has grown out of that, out of that new, it's it's a new form of gender inequality in many ways that has been exacerbated um, since the market reform uh, period of the, I would say, the late 1990s and and into the 2000s. That period is where gender inequality on many levels skyrocketed. China. And so uh, 
feminism, this new form of feminist activism has grown against that backdrop of dramatically rising gender inequality and the government deliberately pushing these very traditional gender norms. So, of course, a lot of particularly young women, well, there are, there are different reasons, there are always different reasons why when you're asking a woman, do you feel that you're discriminated against in any way? There are so many different reasons why a woman would say, no, everything's perfectly fine. You know, I am treated completely equally and I, you know, I have it great. Um, but a lot of the reasons may be that they're just not, they're looking around them and they don't see other women saying things are really bad. So what's happening now and what the feminist movement has done in China is to raise the level of awareness in, in general. Keep, keep, they're on the fringes, they're, they're on the, you know, the front lines of trying to raise other women's consciousness, mm. make them open their eyes about the reality of their daily lives and to realize that whatever problems they're encountering are in many cases not their fault. They're a, a result of structural injustice. Um, and so that, that's a, a big part of what I'm writing about, is that there, there are, there's been a real increase in, in women, particularly those who have gone to college. Um, it just in the last few years of these women who actually are willing to stand up and say, no, think not everything is not okay. Wow, there is just so much wrapped up in all of this. In the same way your first book led to your second book, how are you thinking about your third book? Or are you really in the moment right now? Have you expected to get the response that you have from portraying Big Brother? Well, first of all, I'm really very pleased at the response, the reception to this second book. Um, and I've been basically traveling um, a, a lot since it came out in September. I've been traveling a lot globally to talk about the book. And I'm really delighted that there's so many people who are interested. Um, and... So I haven't had a lot of time to work on a new project because I've been promoting this book so much and traveling so much. Um, but I do think, certainly, and I write about this actually in the second book at the conclusion that I'm, you know I write about China's patriarchal authoritarianism and I have a special, I have a chapter called China's patriarchal authoritarianism, but. I conclude the book by saying, well, actually, this is not just a phenomenon confined to China. Basically, what we're seeing globally is a rise in authoritarianism, um, a particular kind of quote-unquote strongman authoritarian ruler is on the ascendancy. We see it in so many countries, you know, not just China. You can look at so many other autocracies, whether it's you know, Russia, Turkey, Hungary, Poland, the Philippines, um, the United States is classic 
I mean, we're a de democracy, and yet it's just really incredibly shocking how rapidly our economic, sorry, how rapidly our democratic institutions have come under assault with yeah. this new president who is deeply misogynistic. And so I believe that there is a strong link between misogyny or the general subjugation of women and authoritarian rule. And so that's something that I'm thinking a lot about now um, in terms of you know what I'm going to do in the future. Right. Yeah, I, I feel like it's never been an idea that we grappled with in the States because authoritarianism felt so far away, so removed. I think I would like to ask one last question here. And I ask this to most interviewees. It's what's one piece of advice that someone gave you a while back that you found yourself giving people recently? One very practical piece of advice for women is say no, say no to things um, in so many different ways, um, whether it is, uh, you know, well, the most extreme, I don't want to get into sex, sexual assault is a bad example, but say no to requests from people that you, you know, uh, don't know, or if you're not really interested in doing something, just don't do it. And it's okay to say no. And that's something that I have only very recently started to do because I've had, like so many other women in particular, um, I like to say yes when people ask me to do things. And, um, and so that's something that I personally have been doing more of is just saying, you know, I need to take care of myself. I have a limited amount of time and I can't do everything. And so um, I can't say yes to everything. So I think that's a bit of practical advice. Really practical advice and a great note to end on. I want to thank you for being so gracious with your time and sharing with listeners more about your story and your viewpoint and how you've gotten to where you're at today. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Juliana. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in today. Tafferta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser Quo for co-producing and Jason McRonald for editing. Also make sure to check out the other great podcasts on the Seneca Network. I always do love tuning in and staying abreast of different China news. Also, please make sure to rate and leave a review on anywhere that you listen to podcasts. We're definitely trying to increase our footprint and get more listeners hearing this awesome content from the ladies that come on the show. As always, I love hearing from all of you. So if you have questions, comments, suggestions, please send them to ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.